Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So we're on a journey, this camp meeting series, traveling alone together. As you can see, we have the set for the journey. It's the discipleship journey with Jesus. That's what we're talking about this camp meeting series. If you've been part of our community, you know that we talk about five. It's really four, but the last one has two elements. So five values for those who want to be growing disciples. Worship, we talked about that last week. Bible study and prayer, our theme today, community, and then two branches of service, service to the world's needs and service to God by sharing his word with the world. In this camp meeting series, we're looking carefully at what it means to be a growing disciple in community, traveling alone together. So that second one is our focus today, Bible study and prayer. I refer to it as communing because that's the method by which we commune with God. His word, listening to him, our hearts, sharing our prayers with God. Now, Loma Linda University Church has built quite a culture that involves those two realities now for quite a number of years. There are many Bible study opportunities. We invite you to engage with us, engage with each other in Bible study, and then prayer. We have focused on prayer in many different ways, whether it be the act of praying together, whether it be seminars, sermon series, annual prayer conference. We have focused on those realities intentionally because we believe they're a part of discipleship growth. But today we want to do it in a bit of a different way. Remember, we're traveling alone together. And so we want to talk about those two realities, Bible study and prayer, in community. In fact, I'd like to just lay out right here at the front what our lesson is for today, what the main thought of this time together is. Here it is. Scripture's deep work and prayer's deep healing are often experienced in community. In community. So we're going to look at those two elements one at a time from two different New Testament letters. So we begin with the first one. Scripture's deep work is often experienced in community. I want to turn to Paul's last, at least as far as we know, his last letter, 2 Timothy. A letter he wrote to his young protege in the faith, his young son in the faith is what he calls him, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the latter part of that chapter, in the TNIV from which I'm reading, it gives this section the heading, A Final Charge to Timothy. So Paul is down to his last words, the last things he's going to say to this young son in the faith. And as he writes those words, he starts talking about Scripture. In the words that we will read, they're only a part of that last section, 
you will see that he says basically two things. One, he talks about the nature of Scripture, that Scripture is inspired. That's not our main focus today. Our main focus is the second thing he says, what Scripture is useful to accomplish. So remember, what we're talking about right now is Scripture's deep work is often experienced in community. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, I start reading with verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you know how you and I tend to experience Scripture? Alone. You get up in the morning, you want to have some time with Jesus before the day begins, and so you take your Bible, you sit in your favorite quiet place at home, you pray, and you open, and you begin to take it in, alone. It's my Bible, it's my quiet place, it's my closet, it's my study, it's my devotion, me, me, me. It's a very individualistic experience for many of us in our modern world. That would not have been true in the world of Paul and Timothy. In fact, many, some would argue most in the population, could not read. And furthermore, the scrolls of Scripture, what we today would call the Old Testament, weren't easily accessible or available. Typically, they were contained within the temple grounds or in a synagogue. And so only those who had access to them could open them to read them. And even when they were opened, not everybody could read them. So when Paul starts talking about the usefulness of Scripture, the people who are listening to that, or the ones that could read who read it, immediately said, that's a communal event. That doesn't happen by myself. That happens in a community of believers, people who come together to study. So while we may think, of the private value Scripture has to us, and that is important, the readers, the listeners at that time often thought about its communal relevance. And that becomes clear in what Paul says Scripture is useful to do because he's saying that Scripture forms us into the ways and the will of God. How does it form us? He talks about four ways in which that happens. You saw it right there in verse 16. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Each one of those acts happens in a relationship. None of those are individual kinds of acts. Teaching. The word that Paul uses here is didaskalias. It's a word that in the pastoral epistles, that's 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, short epistles, Paul uses 15 times. In the entire remainder of the New Testament, that word is used six times. In other words, Paul is very focused on this at this point in his writing career. He recognized the importance, recognizes the importance of sound teaching, of sound doctrine. And so he says, that's one thing for which Scripture is useful. It forms our thinking so that we understand God correctly. Teaching happens in a church setting. It happens here at our church by both pastors and by lay leaders. Somebody who has spent some time studying something and then who, who stands up to teach others. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's a communal event. Now, the second one is not my favorite one. 
he says, rebuking. Some versions translate it reproving. I don't like that. I don't like doing it. I don't like getting it. But if we're honest with each other, in any endeavor in life, we often need someone to step in and, I'll use the word, rebuke us. Tell us where something is being done wrong. I just finished a book, the biography of Steve Young, NFL quarterback, San Francisco 49ers. He was locked in a, in a heated quarterback controversy with Joe Montana. It was kind of taking over his life, his thought life and everything else. He was struggling with it until he happened to sit on an airline flight next to a gentleman by the name of Stephen Covey. You'll recognize him, the seven habits of highly effective people. Young says Covey talked with him about what Young was experiencing him. He, if I could say it this way, rebuked him spoke to him of the advantages, of the positive things that could come out of that. Young says, that totally changed my attitude. Completely. Well, in the body of Christ, in our study of Scripture, there is a place for that. Though I would suggest that place comes with relational permission. In other words, those who like to do that work of rebuking others shouldn't be doing it. It should be done by those who are hesitant and thoughtful and want to be careful. But again, it's a communal endeavor. Thirdly, he says, correcting. Now, the thought here is not as strong as the thought of rebuking. This one, I think, more like a mentor, somebody who comes alongside you, who cares about you, is not speaking to deep problems or challenges in your life, but is just course correcting. You might want to think about it this way. You might want to consider it that way. Have you looked at what Jesus has to say about it here? Have you read the Proverbs that address this matter? Have you considered what happened to King David in the Old Testament? This is the person who's just correcting, changing a bit of your direction and your view. But it grows out of Scripture. It grows out of relationship. So once again, it's that communal kind of experience. So teaching, rebuking, correcting, and the last thing for which Paul here says Scripture is useful is training in righteousness. Now, interestingly enough, the, the term here that the Greek uses for training is a term that is also used of training up children. So Paul is talking about Scripture being the basis of our growth. We talk here at Loma Linda University Church about growing as disciples. That's what we want to do. In other words, this is the person who steps into your life, who has been down the road further than you have, who has walked with Jesus longer than you have, and is able to help guide and direct and, yes, train you in the way of living to which God calls us. So Paul talks to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, about four useful realities of Scripture, every single one of them having to do with relationship, with community. In other words, he's not giving Timothy four easy steps to study your Bible better in the privacy of your closet. 
He's saying, Timothy, when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to this act we call Bible study, while the closet has its place, see Jesus, in fact, on that and what he says about it, there is also a very clear place for the community of faith to study together. Communal acts. In fact, consider these words about this very passage taken from the old scholar William Barclay. He writes this. Here is the essential conclusion. The study of the scriptures must never be selfish. Never simply for the good of an individual's own soul. Any conversion which makes someone think nothing of nothing but the fact that he or she has been saved is no true conversion. We must study the scriptures to make ourselves useful to God and to other people. No one is saved, says Barclay, who does not have a burning desire to save others. Scripture's deep work often takes place in community. Maybe you've wondered. Maybe you've thought, I read the Bible. I read it every day. I pray that God will make it effective in my life. I pray that He will make me more patient, that He will make me more gentle, that He will make me more kind, that He will make me more loving. And then I read the passages of Scripture that address those very realities. And I think, okay, I have a good hold on this. I'm going out to face the day. And then you fall flat on your face. Have you ever wondered why that teaching doesn't take deeper hold of your heart? I don't know all the reasons why. But I would venture a guess at one of them. And that is, maybe it's in community that we find accountability, that we find people who ask us about what we read that morning or last week, that we find people who call us to account, who reprove, who correct, but who also teach and train. If the study of Scripture in your life has not taken root and borne fruit, maybe it's time to study it in community. Because Scripture's deep work often takes place in community. So remember our theme for today. Scripture's deep work and prayer's deep healing often take place in community. So now let's turn to the second part of our theme. Prayer's deep healing often takes place in community. Now for this, we go to the book of James in the New Testament, the book of James chapter 5. Now you recognize as soon as I say James that we're going to a book that is deeply interested in not talking the talk, of Christian faith, but in walking the walk. In fact, if you sit down with the commentary and read about the theme of the book of James, you'll discover that scholars, many of them, struggle with saying, what is the core theme of James? It seems to be all of these pieces just thrown together in a puzzle that doesn't make sense. Almost some notes that were taken for a sermon that went all over the place. Well, I would suggest to you that the key theme of James is walking the walk. 
And that's what he talks about here in James chapter 5. We're right at the very end of the book. We're in a section that some of you have not only read, but you have experienced. If you've had a dearly loved one who has been ill and you've called for the elders of the church to come and, and they have come and prayed and anointed that person with oil, we do that because of what James 5 has to say, specifically. But in that context, he's not merely talking about anointing and the prayer of faith for physical healing. When you delve down into the passage, he's talking about an even deeper level of healing. Spiritual, soul healing, forgiveness, a slate wiped clean before God, being at peace with God. It's a deep healing. And it happens in the context of the prayer of faith. In fact, in these verses, the word prayer or pray appears five times in three or four verses. So James is clearly speaking about prayer. It's when he comes to the end of that short section that he makes a statement that calls our attention today. James chapter 5, verse 16. It says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I want to point you to three factors in this passage today. Remember what we're talking about. Prayer's deep healing often takes place in community. Three factors. The first is that this reality of which James writes is communal. Communal. Remember, the overall passage begins with him saying, call for the elders of the church to come. <clears throat> they will come and they will pray over you. Already there you have a small group that is gathered together for prayer. Communal. But then in this last verse that we read, did you notice what he says? He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Each other, each other. This experience is communal in nature. There's no escaping it. Now, it's true that in the world of James, there weren't large churches like there are today. They tended to be small house churches. So you're talking about smaller groups that are part of the larger body of Christ. But James is saying, when you want to experience the deep healing that prayer can offer, physical, yes, but spiritual, clearly, call a group together. Make it a communal experience. We don't do that enough. But I can tell you, having many times in my life been part of such an experience, that there is a, a holiness, a sacredness that can descend over a group that prays deeply together. Prayer's deep healing often happens in community. And so the first part of what James says is this is communal in nature. 
But secondly, says James, it's confessional in nature. Not just communal, but confessional. We read it right there in verse 16. Confess your sins to one another. Now there is some disagreement among scholars as to exactly what James means there. Just how much do we confess? Just how much do we share? Just how much do we open up to other people? And how much of that should be kept in privacy between only God and my own soul? A statement by a New Testament scholar by the name of Roger Ellsworth will help us there. Listen to what Ellsworth writes. Confession should always be as wide as the sin. If we have sinned secretly, we should confess it to God. If we have sinned against someone else, we should confess it to God and to the person that we have wronged. And if we have sinned publicly, we should confess it to God and in public. Furthermore, if a fellow believer comes to us to confess that he or she has sinned against us, we must always be willing to grant forgiveness. Only in this way can we be healed or reconciled. So there is an appropriateness to confessing something just between God and me or just between myself and the person with whom it happened or in a wider group if many more know about it. But there's a second view of this passage. And that is that others have underlined the authenticity toward which James calls us. To be authentic in a small community of people. To have people in my life, to have people in your life who know the reality of who we are. Know about our struggles, our temptations. Know about the issues we're facing, the uncertainties we have, the doubt we feel, the faith we need. To be authentic and real. Those kinds of authentic relationships have been among God's greatest gift in my life. People with whom I'm able to be exactly who I am. What a powerful reality. And then if you take that kind of experience and bathe the whole experience in prayer, Wow, says James. There's great power in that. He's calling us here to a prayer experience that is not just communal in nature, but that is confessional in nature. But I said there were three factors. And there is a third one. Not only is it communal, not only is it confessional, but thirdly, it is curative. It's curative. It's it's healing. So back to a New Testament scholar again, this time to J. Ronald Blue, who writes about this passage in this way. A mutual concern for one another is the way to combat discouragement and downfall. The cure is in personal confession and prayerful concern. The healing is not bodily healing, but healing of the soul. It is the powerful and effective prayer of a righteous person that brings the needed cure from God. Yes, this passage does address physical healing. No question. 
but it drives deep into the heart of the soul and says, if you are being authentic before God and authentic in a community that gathers to pray, there is deep healing in that experience. You know the reality of how healing that can be. I remember reading of a man who was in a 12-step group, deeply addicted to a substance, desperately trying to recover some sense of health in his life, running from many different sins and ills and tragedies and failures in the past, trying to hide. And then he took his fourth step in the 12-step group. He not only did a fearless and searching moral inventory of himself, but then he opened up and shared it with God himself and another human being, admitting the exact nature of his wrongs. After he had shared that with his sponsor, this is what I remember reading. He said, I may have been loved before, but I never felt loved until that moment. And the reason was simple. He was fully known. When he was fully known and still fully loved. Wow, there's healing in that. No wonder James says this is curative in nature. When it's communal, an experience that you have. When it's confessional, what you do. No wonder that results in a curative experience. That's why he ends that verse, that passage, by saying the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. It's transformative. Because simply put, prayer's deepest healing often takes place in community. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer made a statement about this that is worth pondering, worth lingering over. In his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer penned these words, A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intersection of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His faith that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner." This is a happy discovery for the Christian who begins to pray for others. That's really what James is talking about. Prayer's deep healing often takes place in community. And so we're separated right now. I've spoken with many of you. There's a pain in that separation, a yearning to be back together, worshiping God together, publicly gathered in our sanctuary. But friends, the truth is, in Bible study and in prayer, we have many ways in which we can continue now, even when we're alone, to do that together. We can travel this journey alone, but together. Our church has many opportunities for these very realities. 
for Bible study communities online, Zoom communities, broadcast communities, personal communities where people can get together in small Bible study groups. Avail yourself of one of those. Study the Bible in community. And prayer? We have soaked this season in prayer. Did you know that our congregation has a prayer time every single morning, every day of the week, every week as we've gone through this at 7 a.m. from 7 to 7.45 a.m.? You can find the information on our website. And you can join together with dozens and dozens of other people reaching out to pray together. We're taking the discipleship journey. We're serious about being growing disciples. But if we are to grow as disciples, it requires communing with God. And communing means we need to hear what He says and heed it. And then God needs to hear what we say and help us. And that's why our second value is Bible study and prayer. And that's why during this time, even if we're alone, Let's travel alone together as we commune. Because the truth is very simple. Scripture's deep work and prayer's deep healing often take place in community.